Chapter 30 of Vanished Arizona. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Velwest. Vanished Arizona. Recollections of the Army Life of a New England Woman by Martha Summerhays. Chapter 30 Fort Niobrara. The journey itself, however, was not to be dreaded, although it was so undesired. It was entirely by rail across New Mexico and Kansas, to St. Joseph, then up the Missouri River, and then across the state to the westward. Finally, after four or five days, we reached the small frontier town of Valentine, in the very northwest corner of the bleak and desolate state of Nebraska. The post of Niobrara was four miles away on the Niobrara Swiftwater River. Some officers of the Ninth Cavalry met us at the station with the post ambulances. There were six companies of our regiment, with headquarters and band. It was November, and the drive across the rolling prairie land gave us a fair glimpse of the country around. We crossed the old bridge over the Niobrara River and entered the post. The snow lay already on the brown and barren hills, and the place struck a chill to my heart. The Ninth Cavalry took care of all the officers' families until we could get established. Lieutenant Bingham, a handsome and distinguished-looking young bachelor, took us with our two children to his quarters, and made us delightfully at home. His quarters were luxuriously furnished, and he was altogether adorable. This, to be sure, helped to soften my first harsh impressions of the place. Quarters were not very plentiful, and we were compelled to take a house occupied by a young officer of the ninth. What base ingratitude it seemed after the kindness we had accepted from his regiment! But there was no help for it. We secured a colored cook who proved a very treasure, and on inquiring how she came to be in these wilds, I learned that she had accompanied a young heiress who eloped with a cavalry lieutenant from her home in New York some years before. What a contrast was here, and what a cruel contrast! With blood thinned down by the enervating summer at Tucson, here we were, thrust into the polar regions, ice and snow and blizzards, blizzards and snow and ice. The mercury disappeared at the bottom of the thermometer, and we had nothing to mark any degrees lower than forty below zero. Human calculations had evidently stopped there. Enormous box stoves were in every room and in the halls, the old-fashioned sort that we used to see in schoolrooms and meeting-houses in new england into these the soldiers stuffed great logs of mountain mahogany and the fires were kept roaring day and night a board-walk ran in front of the officers quarters and desperate for fresh air and exercise some of the ladies would bundle up and go to walk but frozen chins, ears, and elbows soon made this undesirable, and we gave up trying the fresh air, unless the mercury rose to eighteen below, when a few of us would take our daily promenade. 
We could not complain of our fare, however, for our larder hung full of all sorts of delicate and delicious things brought in by the Grangers, and which we were glad to buy. Prairie chickens, young pigs, venison, and ducks, all hanging to be used when desired. To frap a bottle of wine, we stood it on the porch. In a few minutes it would pour crystals. Housekeeping was easy, but keeping warm was difficult. It was about this time that the law was passed, abolishing the post-trader's store and forbidding the selling of whiskey to soldiers on a government reservation. The pleasant canteen, or post-exchange, the soldiers' club room, was established, where the men could go to relieve the monotony of their lives. With the abolition of whiskey, the tone of the post improved greatly. The men were contented with a glass of beer or light wine. The canteen was well managed, so the profits went back into the company messes in the shape of luxuries heretofore unknown. Billiards and reading rooms were established, and from that time on the canteen came to be regarded in the army as a most excellent institution. The men gained in self-respect. The canteen provided them with a place where they could go and take a bite of lunch, read, chat, smoke, or play games with their own chosen friends, and escape the lonesomeness of the barracks. But alas, this condition of things was not destined to endure, for the women of the various temperance societies, in their mistaken zeal and woeful ignorance of the soldier's life, succeeded in influencing legislation to such an extent that the canteen in its turn was abolished, with what dire results we of the army all know. These estimable women of the WCTU thought to do good to the army, no doubt, but through their pitiful ignorance of the soldier's needs, they have done him an incalculable harm. Let them stay by their lectures and their clubs, I say, and their other amusements. Let them exercise their good influences nearer home, with a class of people whose conditions are understood by them, where they can, no doubt, do worlds of good. They cannot know the drear monotony of the barracks life in the frontier in times of peace. I have lived close by it, and I know it well. A ceaseless round of drill and work and lessons, and work and lessons and drill. No recreation, no excitement, no change. Far away from family and all home companionship, a man longs for some pleasant place to go after the day's work is done. Perhaps these women think, if in their blind enthusiasm they think at all, that a young soldier or an old soldier needs no recreation. At all events, they have taken from him the only one he had, the good old canteen, and given him nothing in return. Now, Fort Niobrara was a large post. There were ten companies, cavalry and infantry. General August V. Kotz, the colonel of the 8th Infantry, in command. And here, amidst the sand hills of Nebraska, we first began to really know our colonel. A man of strong convictions and abiding honesty, a soldier who knew his profession thoroughly, having not only achieved distinction in the Civil War, 
but having served when little more than a boy in the Mexican War of 1846. Genial in his manners, brave and kind, he was beloved by all. The three Cotts children, Frankie, Austin, and Navarra, were the inseparable companions of our own children. There was a small school for the children of the post, and a soldier by the name of Delaney was schoolmaster. He tried hard to make our children learn, but they did not wish to study, and spent all their spare time in planning tricks to be played upon poor Delaney. It was a difficult situation for the soldier. Finally, the two oldest Coates children were sent east to boarding school, and we also began to realize that something must be done. Our surroundings during the early winter, it is true, had been dreary enough, but as the weather softened a bit and the spring approached, the post began to wake up. In the meantime, Cupid had not been idle. It was observed that Mr. Bingham, our gracious host of the Ninth Cavalry, had fallen in love with Antoinette, the pretty and attractive daughter of Captain Lynch of our own regiment, and the post began to be on the qui vive to see how the affair would end, for nobody expects to see the course of true love run smooth. In their case, however, the fates were kind, and in due time the happy engagement was announced. We had an excellent amusement hall with a fine floor for dancing. The chapel was at one end, and a fairly good stage was at the other. Being nearer civilization now in the state of Nebraska, Uncle Sam provided us with a chaplain, and a weekly service was held by the Anglican clergyman, a tall, well-formed man, a scholar, and, as we say, a gentleman. He wore the uniform of the army chaplain, and as far as looks went, could hold his own with any of the younger officers. And it was a great comfort to the church people to have this weekly service. During the rest of the time, the chapel was concealed by heavy curtains, and the seats turned around facing the stage. We had a good string orchestra of twenty or more pieces, and as there was a number of active young bachelors at the post, a series of weekly dances was inaugurated. Never did I enjoy dancing more than at this time. Then Mrs. Coutts, who was a thorough music lover, and had a cultivated taste as well as a trained and exquisite voice, gave several musicals, for which much preparation was made, and which were most delightful. These were given at the quarters of General Coutts, a long, low, rambling, one-story house, arranged with that artistic taste for which Mrs. Coutts was distinguished. Then came theatricals, all managed by Mrs. Coutts, whose talents were versatile. We charged admission, for we needed some more scenery, and the neighboring frontier town of Valentine came riding and driving over the prairie and across the old bridge of the Niobrara River to see our plays. We had a well-lighted stage. Our methods were primitive, as there was no gas or electricity there in those days, but the results were good, and the histrionic ability shown by some of our young men and women seemed marvelous to us. I remember especially Bob Emmett's acting, which moved me to tears in a most pathetic love scene. I thought, what has the stage lost in this gifted man? 
but he is of a family whose talents are well known and his personality no doubt added much to his natural ability as an actor neither the army nor the stage can now claim this brilliant cavalry officer as he was induced by urgent family reasons shortly after the period of which i am writing to resign his commission and retire to private life at the very height of his ambitious career and now the summer came on apace a tennis court was made and added greatly to our amusement we were in the saddle every day and the country around proved very attractive at this season both for riding and driving but all this gaiety did not content me for the serious question of education for our children now presented itself the question which sooner or later presents itself to the minds of all the parents of army children it is settled differently by different people it had taken a year for us to decide i made up my mind that the first thing to be done was to take the children east and then decide on schools afterwards so our plans were completed and the day of departure fixed upon jack was to remain at the post about an hour before i was to leave i saw the members of the string orchestra filing across the parade ground coming directly towards our quarters my heart began to beat faster as i realized that mrs coutts had planned a serenade for me i felt it was a great break in my army life but i did not know i was leaving the old regiment forever the regiment with which i had been associated for so many years and as i listened to the beautiful strains of the music i loved so well my eyes were wet with tears and after all the good-byes were said to the officers and their wives my friends who had shared all our joys and our sorrows in so many places and under so many conditions i ran out to the stable and pressed my cheek against the soft warm noses of our two saddle horses i felt that life was over for me and nothing but work and care remained i say i felt all this it must have been premonition for i had no idea that i was leaving the line of the army forever the ambulance was at the door to take us to valentine where i bade jack good-bye and took the train for the east his last promise was to visit us once a year or whenever he could get a leave of absence my husband had now worn the single bar on his shoulder strap for eleven years or more before that the straps of the second lieutenant had adored his broad shoulders for a period quite as long twenty-two years a lieutenant in the regular army after fighting in a volunteer regiment of his own state through the four years of the civil war the gallant and meritorious service for which he had received brevets seemed indeed to have been forgotten he had grown gray in indian campaigns and it looked as if the frontier might always be the home of the senior lieutenant of the old eighth promotion in that regiment had been at a standstill for years being in washington for a short time towards midwinter enjoying the social side of military life at the capital an opportunity came to me to meet president cleveland 
and although his administration was nearing its close, and the stress of official cares was very great, he seemed to have leisure and interest to ask me about my life on the frontier. And as the conversation became quite personal, the impulse seized me to tell him just how I felt about the education of our children, and then to tell him what I thought and what others thought about the unjust way in which the promotions and retirements in our regiment had been managed. He listened with the greatest interest and seemed pleased with my frankness. He asked me what the soldiers and officers out there thought of so-and-so. Oh, they hate him, I said. Whereupon he laughed outright, and I knew I had committed an indiscretion. But life on the frontier does not teach one diplomacy of speech, and by that time I was nerved up to say just what I felt, regardless of results. Well, he said, smiling, I am afraid I cannot interfere much with those military matters. Then, pointing with his left hand and thumb towards the War Department, they fix them all up over there in the adjunct general's office, he added. Then he asked me many more questions, if I had always stayed out there with my husband, and why I did not live in the East, as many army women did and all the time I could hear the dull thud of the carpenter's hammers, for they were building, even then, the board seats for the public who would witness the inaugural ceremonies of his successor. And with each stroke of the hammer his face seemed to grow more sad. I felt the greatness of the man, his desire to be just and good, his marvelous personal power, his ability to understand and to sympathize. And when I parted from him, he said again laughingly, Well, I should not forget your husband's regiment, and if anything turns up for those fine men you have told me about, they will hear from me. And I knew they were the words of a man who meant what he said. In the course of our conversation, he had asked, Who are these men? Do they ever come to Washington? I rarely have these things explained to me, and I have little time to interfere with the decisions of the adjunct general's office. I replied, No, Mr. President, they are not the men you see around Washington. Our regiment stays on the frontier, and these men are the ones who do the fighting, and you people here in Washington are apt to forget all about them. What have they ever done? Were they in the Civil War? he asked. Their records stand in black and white in the War Department, I replied, if you have the interest to learn more about them. Women's opinions are influenced by their feelings, he said. Mine are based upon what I know, and I am prepared to stand by my convictions, I replied. Soon after this interview I returned to New York, and I did not give the matter very much further thought. But my impression of the greatness of Mr. Cleveland, and of his powerful personality, has remained with me to this day. A vacancy occurred about this time in the quartermaster's department, and the appointment was eagerly sought for by many lieutenants of the Army. President Cleveland saw fit to give the appointment to Lieutenant Summerhays, making him a captain and quartermaster. And then another vacancy occurred shortly after, and he appointed Lieutenant John McEwen Hyde to be also a captain and quartermaster.
Lieutenant Hyde stood next in rank to my husband, and had grown gray in the old Eighth Infantry. So the regiment came in for its honor at last, and General Coutts, when the news of the second appointment reached him, exclaimed, "'Well, well, does the President think my regiment a nursery for the staff?' The eighth foot and the ninth horse at Niobrara gave the new captain and quartermaster a rousing farewell, for now my husband was leaving his old regiment forever, and while he appreciated fully the honor of his new staff position, he felt a sadness at breaking off the associations of so many years, a sadness which can scarcely be understood by the young officers of the present day, who are promoted from one regiment to another, and rarely remain long enough with one organization to know even the men of their own company. There were many champagne suppers, dinners, and card parties given for him, to make the good-byes something to be remembered. And at the end of the week's festivities he departed by a night train from Valentine, thus eluding the hospitality of those generous but wild frontiersmen, who were waiting to give him what they call out there a send-off. For Valentine was like all frontier towns, a row of stores and saloons. The men who kept them were generous, if somewhat rough. One of the officers of the post, having occasion to go to the railroad station one day at Valentine, saw the body of a man hanging to a telegraph pole a short distance up the track. He said to the station man, "'What does that mean?' nodding his head in the direction of the telegraph pole. "'Why, it means just this,' said the station man. "'The people who hung that man last night had the nerve to put him right in front of this place. By God, what would the passengers think of this town, sir, as they went by? Why, the reputation of Valentine would be ruined.' "'Yes, sir, we cut him down and moved him up a pole or two. He was a hard case, though.' he added. End of chapter 30